My name is Lalita Ramakrishnan. I'm a professor of immunology and infectious diseases at the University of Cambridge. And I'm going to tell you in this lecture about some discoveries in our lab that suggest that tuberculosis is actually or can actually be an inflammatory disease. Now, typically, one thinks of um, infectious diseases as diseases of failed inflammation. And one thinks of the in immune system as having evolved to fight infections. And then, in, uh, particularly in modern times, it can, it th it, things can go awry, and the in immune system can cause inflammatory diseases such as cancers and arthritis and so on. But, of course, it turns out that the reality is not so straightforward. And uh, our work would suggest that tuberculosis can be as much a disease of overactive inflammation as failed in inflammation. So, in my uh, prior lectures, I've told you a little bit about the life cycle of TB. And, and just to quickly reiterate that, we've got bacteria that get uh, aerosolized from infected individuals, reach the lung of uh, an individual next to them. They get into macrophages. These macrophages aggregate to form the granuloma that I talked about in uh, my, in my uh, previous lecture. But then, a critical component of the life cycle is, of course, that the bacteria have to get out and infect a new person. And they do... And, and this is most efficient when the granuloma can undergo what is called a central necrosis. And you can see those bacteria sort of surging out of a necrotic area and going to infect the next host. Now... Now, we model... Uh, TB in the zebrafish, as I told you in my prior lecture. And what you can see here is a zebrafish granuloma with uh, a nice cellular uh, area in the, in, the, in the periphery, which has some bacteria in it. And what you can see is that the, uh, the center has undergone necrosis, and there's just a ton of bacteria in there, as we would predict from the human... Um, uh, granuloma lesions. Now, this is in an adult zebrafish that has the full complement of innate and adaptive immunity as people who... immunocompetent people who get TB do. And so, one question that arose in our lab was, is this something specific about a granuloma, about a macrophage? Is this ability to contain infection to the extent that they can um, due to the uh, sort of ad additional um, juices that have uh, come into the macrophage from the influence of adaptive immunity, the additional microbicidal capacity, so to speak. And so, we were able to s uh, settle this question. And the question being, can macrophages just under the control of innate immunity still control bacteria to some extent? And this question came... Uh, the answer to this question came from experiments done by Hilary Clay, who was a graduate student in the lab. And what she did was to simply use zebrafish larvae, which, in a, a, in addition to being transparent, haven't yet developed adaptive immunity. Like mammals, adaptive immunity takes a few weeks to 
to develop in the fish. So in this early phase, we're just looking at innate immunity. And what she did in these fish was to simply knock down the macrophages using a, um, uh, uh, a morpholino, an antisense RNA, to a myeloid transcription factor. And what you can see very nicely here is that fish without macrophages have very many more bacteria. The bacteria are fluorescent here than the fish on the left, their siblings on the left that have macrophages. So this told us that innate macrophages can restrict mycobacterial growth to quite a large extent. Not completely, obviously, but to a large extent. And then Hillary went on to show uh, how ma uh, macrophages do this. And she found that um, uh, 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 an, uh, uh, an immune molecule, a cytokine called tumor necrosis factor, or TNF, was one of the key players in the ability of the innate macrophage to control, um, uh, to, to control uh, bacterial growth in a, in a macrophage. And she also went on to show that if the fish didn't have TNF, then what would happen was that the individual macrophage wouldn't be able to control the growth of the bacteria. The bacteria would overgrow in the macrophages, and ultimately they would just lice open the macrophages. And this is very different from the kind of apoptotic death that I talked to you about in my last lecture. This is a full-on necrosis where the, the bacteria are spilled out of the macrophage, and now they're in the extracellular environment where they seem to be able to grow uh, in a more unfettered fashion than when they are in macrophages. Okay, so we had got to this point, uh, and, uh, but it's now time to step back a few years to retrieve some history. So I told you in my last lecture how I settled upon using Mycobacterium marinum, a close relative of the human TB bacterium, which is a fish and a fish pathogen. And this was thanks to uh, advice from Stanley Falco, who was my postdoctoral advisor. And at the time, I was an infectious diseases fellow at UCSF. And I was, uh, I still remember this uh, vividly. I was uh, sitting with my, uh, my clinical attending, uh, Don Payan, uh, at his house, and I told him how I was going to go off to Stan Falco's lab, and I was going to use Mycobacterium marinum to unravel the secrets of TB. And he said to me, oh, then you should use zebrafish and explore the host site. And I must confess that I didn't know at the time what, what that meant, but I went home and did some reading and realized that zebrafish were being used by people to do what is called forward genetics. I, at, at the end of my tenure at Stanford, at this point I had mainly explored the bacterium because nobody had worked on the bacterium. So I had um, developed genetics and other tools in it and so on and, and uh, really hadn't thought about, hadn't had time to work on the fish, but it had never left my mind. Don's advice had never left my mind. And at that point, Will Talbot showed up at Stanford as a, he was recruited as a faculty member. And he gave me another key piece of advice. He said, well, you don't just have to use the adult zebrafish, you know. You can try using the larval fish, which are transparent, and you can do lots more things in them. And so actually, we even got some fish from, Will gave us some fish larvae, and we, we infected them, and we saw that they, they got uh, granulomas. And this was uh, 
this was a very exciting thing for us. And it was with, and it was with all of this that I left for the University of Washington to set up um, uh, zebrafish as a model for TB. And I've told you a little bit about what we've done with that in the, pre, in the, in the prior talk. But everything I've told you to date was using what we call reverse genetics in the fish and genetics in the bacteria. So we mutated the bacteria and we saw how the mutants behaved differently. We had candidate genes in the fish and we mutated them and we saw how they behaved differently. But when Don Payan had told me about the power of the zebrafish, what he was referring to was the ability to do what we call forward genetics in the fish. And by that I mean making a random bank of fish mutants and simply infecting them and asking the fish to tell us what is important in an agnostic way without any a priori bias about what might be important for infection. And um, so we were thinking about doing this, and, uh, and then it all happened because of two things. First, David Tobin, a postdoc, uh, David Tobin joined my lab as a postdoc, and David had been, had done forward genetics in the worm for neurobehavioral traits at UCSF, but then had taken off and gone to Guatemala for a couple of years where he had seen the ravages of TB and had become interested in this, had seen that we had done work with the zebrafish and, of course, had understood that you could use the fish to do forward genetics, so he asked me if he could come to the lab and do that. And at the same time, my colleague, um, Cecilia Mons, was setting, was, was had zebrafish screens running at the Fred Hutch Cancer Center for uh, neurobehavioral traits. And she not only let us piggyback on her screens, but she also gave us invaluable advice on how to conduct the screens and actually does so to this day. Let's have a look at the mechanics of the screen. What you do is you mutagenize male fish and then you cross them, and then you do subsequent crosses until you get, uh, until you can homozygose uh, the mutants. And you now take these mutants and screen them for your trait. Now, before we could do this, we needed to have a really good high-throughput way to screen the fish. And um, although I show you pictures which make the fish look very big and lovely, they're actually tiny. And you can see here, that our little fish that we infect would fit into the cravat of uh, Lincoln on the penny. So how does one do this? So people in the lab um, developed methods to inject the fish, and you use a glass needle, and you put the bacteria in the glass needle. These are pulled glass needles that we pull ourselves. You put the bacteria in, and you put some red dye so you can visualize them. And you can either inject the hindbrain ventricle cavity, as I showed you in my last talk, or you can also inject directly into the vein of the, the tail vein of the fish. And um, Kevin Takaki in the lab really perfected these uh, techniques. And he, not only that, but he also was able to show that you could put the fish into these 96-well plates and keep them in there, and you could then image the whole plate, and you could look at the bacterial fluorescence, 
and you could quantify it with some very simple code that we'd written. So now things were um, fairly automated and the throughput was reasonably good and we could do screens like this. So when David started the screen, he found a number of mutants and I'm going to tell you about one of them. So here's a mutant and you can see quite that it's quite obvious that it's hypersusceptible. It has a lot more bacteria than its sibling that's on the top panel. But David made a very interesting um, hit. He, he, he made a very interesting observation. And that was that not only did it have a lot of um, bacteria, but these bacteria were growing in these sort of matted cords in the same way that Hillary had seen in the TNF-deficient fish. And this phenomenon of cording is one that was identified by Robert Koch, the discoverer of TB in, in 1882. And um, David then went on to use this trait to, to map the mutant to genetically map the mutant. And it was, it, was a, it was a very nice feeling to use a bacterial trait that was discovered in the 1800s to map a, a host mutant in, in the 2000s. When David mapped the mutant, it mapped to the arachidonic acid pathway. Arachidonic acid gets converted to leukotriene A4, which is a highly unstable... Uh, 20-carbon lipid mediator. And then this gets converted to a stable um, mo molecule seen on the left, leukotriene B4, which is known to be highly pro-inflammatory. And the mutant was lacking in the enzyme that converted leukotriene A4 to leukotriene B4. So that seemed an obvious reason why it wouldn't... Uh, resist why it would be susceptible to TB because it couldn't mount a good inflammatory response. But when David looked at this a little further, he realized that it wasn't because it didn't have leukotriene B4. You need leukotriene B4 for other things, but it turns out you don't need it to protect yourself against TB. And um, he found that instead what was happening was that in the absence of leukotriene B4, leukotriene A4, the substrate, was being, con uh, was being channeled to the formation of an anti-inflammatory lipid mediator on the, on the, on the right. Uh, and this is called lipoxin A4. And this had a dominant immunomodulatory effect so that this fish simply could not mount a good immune response. And we had shown some of this genetically, but then uh, we got, uh, we, um, uh, we, um, talked to Charlie Surhan about it, who had actually discovered lipoxin A4. He's at Harvard. And he uh, helped us by showing biochemically that this, is ex this was what was happening, and this was very good for us. Now, so to summarize, what David's mutants showed was that if he didn't have leuco... If the fish didn't make leukotriene A4 hydrolase, it made too, many, too, ma too much lipoxin. And he showed that if you made too much lipoxin, you couldn't mount a, a, an immune response, particularly a TNF response. And then you, the macrophages couldn't control infection, and they lysed open, and you got uncontrolled extracellular bacterial growth or cording. But when David looked at this a little further, we had a bit of a surprise, because he found that if you 
if you, exp- if you overexpress the enzyme in the fish, then you got the same phenotype as with too little enzyme. You got uncontrolled bacterial growth. And you got the fish made too much of the lipid of the leukotriene B4, and they made too much TNF. And they, so, so both an absence of the lipid mediator and too much of it had the same effect of making bacteria grow extracellularly. And this was done by an opposite dysregulation of TNF. Okay, so before we go any further, we asked ourselves, before we went any further, we asked ourselves, okay, well, this is all done in, in, in fish eggs, caviar. Does this have anything to do with human TB? And so what, let me give you the punchline first. So what, what uh, David found was a promoter variant in the human leukotriene A4 hydrolase promoter. And it was a, 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 vari- a C to T trans- transition. And he was able to show that CCs made very little of the leukotriene, less of the leukotriene A4 hydrolase, TTs made more, and the CTs made intermediate levels. And then when he went and looked at a cohort of uh, TB patients in Vietnam with the help of a a number of collaborators, he was able to show that TB severity uh, was associated with um, the, the levels of leukotriene exactly as you would predict from the fish. The CCs were the most... The CCs and the CCs... TTs were susceptible, and the CTs were relatively protected. So let's have a look at the data. On the top there, you've got the, uh, the, the variant that uh, David found. And you can see that in, in uh, normal controls, this variant is associated with um, uh, var- uh, varying levels of protein, as you would predict. The CCs make the least, and the TTs make the most, with the CTs being in the middle. Okay, so now let's look at the patient data. For this, we used a cohort of TB meningitis patients that had been assembled in Vietnam. And uh, TB meningitis is a terrible disease. Here is the, uh, is the um, uh, a, 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 a brain from an autopsy of a patient who died of it, and you can see this inflammatory exudate at the base of the brain. And so, as a result, even with really good care, there's quite a high mortality from TB meningitis. And this is in people who get full antibiotic treatment and they have drug-sensitive TB. So it's really a terrible disease. Now, if David was right, then you would predict... If the, if, if the fish were predictive of human disease, then what you would what you might imagine would happen, or what you would predict would happen, is that the heterozygotes for this variant in the leukotriene A4 hydrolase gene, the LTA4H gene, would be, the, would be protected, and the high and low variants would both be susceptible. And that is exactly what we saw over here. So this was quite exciting. Now, because TB meningitis is such a terrible disease, even with antibiotic treatment, people have tried for a very long time to see if some kind of adjunctive treatment can help it. And one model has been that maybe there's a lot of inflammation at the base of the brain, and this makes uh, 
makes people, this, this uh, ex, uh, exacerbates the problem. And so what people have been doing for, for many years is to give patients, along with the TB treatment, uh, broadly acting glucocorticoids, which are a broadly immunosuppressive agent. And people have been doing this for ages. When I went to medical school in India, we did this there. We did, you know, it's done everywhere. But it was done in a, in a sort of a patient, in a physician-dependent fashion until Guy Thwaites did a formal randomized controlled study and showed that, in fact, adding dexamethasone did have an impact of mortal- on mortality. It reduced mortality. But as you can see from the graphs there, it's actually quite a minimal effect. But we had nothing else, and that's why uh, people continue to use it, and now it has become the standard of care. It's no longer dependent on the physician's uh, um, gestalt or wishes. Okay. But the FISH results would predict that people are dying from TB meningitis for two different reasons, too much inflammation and too little inflammation. And if this is the case, then the people with the CC, low inflammatory variant, should be... Uh, should not do well with the steroids, and the only people who should be benefited are the people with the high inflammatory variant. And we were in a position to have a look at this. So let's see what the data looked like. If you now took those same patients that are in the upper graph and parsed them by genotype, you can see that people who got... Let's, let's take a look at the high variant first. The, you can see that the high variant who got the placebo... did quite poorly, but they were very greatly helped by the dexamethasone. In fact, in this small cohort, there wasn't even a single death. On the other hand, if you look at the low variant, they even did... they actually did worse with the steroids. And so, what is now a standard-of-care treatment is helping one group, but harming another group. And um, this, is, this is work that has now been repeated in a new cohort uh, by Guy Thwaites and his colleagues in Vietnam. And uh, I think that it's uh, very like It's going to influence treatment in the, in the next few years. Okay. So, to summarize, what we did was we, we, uh, we took zebrafish, and uh, zebrafish... Um, are uh, native to the waters of the Ganges in the Indo-Gangetic Plain. And I like to joke that that is why they're so clear. And so we took these fish, we did a mutant screen in them, and then we, we take off uh, and go to Vietnam, and we show that uh, the, the variant that we... that the gene that we found in the fish to influence susceptibility did so in Vietnam. And then we actually went to another population of leprosy patients in in Nepal and showed that the variant had the same impact on severity of leprosy in the same manner of heterozygous advantage. And so, from this, we've uh, arrived at a... At a um, um, at a possibility of what we call precision medicine or personalized medicine, which is quite exciting for us. Um, Of course, all of this work was done um, in collaboration with a number of geneticists and clinicians, and uh, in particular, Guy Thwaites and Mary Claire King were were involved in, in understanding this work. But 
we now went back to the zebrafish and we said, okay, this is all good, but can we use the, can we go back to the fish to understand why is it that high TNF makes you more susceptible to TB? We already understood the low TNF part from uh, Hilary Clay's work. And this was, uh, this was something that Francisco Roca, a postdoc in my lab, worked out. So let's have a look at what the fish, what, what, you, what happens if you just have normal, optimal levels of TNF. The macrophage, the macrophage controls the bacterium to a, great, to a large extent, and, but the bacterium use that trick that I showed you in uh, my, my previous talk to bring in more macrophages and spread and expand themselves through the granuloma. Now, if you don't make enough TNF, which you see on the left side, then the macrophage almost doesn't even have time to do this. The bacteria overgrow in the macrophage, the macrophage just ruptures, and the bacteria come out, and they're uh, growing happily extracellularly. But the high TNF, as I told you, gave us the same result, that the bottom was, result was the same. And in the fish, we were able to go back and look at what the fish looked early on, looked like early on. And what we saw was that initially the macrophages control growth even better than the wild type. And yet suddenly they rupture. And now the, the few bacteria that are in them get released and they can grow very quickly and catch up and, uh, and, and sort of game over for the host. Okay. So... Um, what was going on? What Francisco figured out was that when you have an excess of LTA4H, you, get, you have an excess of TNF. And when you have an excess of TNF, and this binds to its receptor, it activates what is called a programmed necrosis pathway. And this involves kinases like RIP1 and RIP3, that then induce the mitochondrion of the macrophage to make a lot of reactive oxygen species. And the reactive oxygen, this excess of reactive oxygen is at first good because it can um, diffuse out, go to where the bacteria are in the cell and start to kill them. And so mycobacteria are resistant to normal levels of reactive oxygen species, but when there's an excess produced, then they start to succumb. And so that's why initially the macrophage is killing the bacteria better. But the problem is that this excess reactive oxygen also triggers a program, a necrosis program in the cell, it's in the macrophage itself. And it does this by uh, through, through a pathway that involves um, moving, uh, that, that involves activating, uh, through a pathway that involves a, um, a mitochondrial matrix protein, cyclophilin D, that participates in the formation of a, uh, of a mitochondrial pore. And then you get leakage of, uh, of uh, mitochondrial contents, uh, loss of voltage potential and leakage of contents. And that necrosis the uh, macrophage. What Fran showed was that there was another pathway that was involved, and that is somehow in this high TNF state, lysosomal acid sphingomyelinase also gets induced, and this then uh, additionally contributes 
to macrophage necrosis. So there were two pathways that were working to induce macrophage necrosis. And the second of them is still being worked out. But what Fran could show was that if he knocked down those two pathways genetically, downstream of reactive oxygen production, then he could convert the hypersensitive fish into a hyper-resistant fish. Because now you had an excess of reactive oxygen, so it could take off and kill the bacteria, but it wasn't killing the macrophage. So he had converted a bad uh, genetic... um, um, uh, well, he had converted a, 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 a hypersusceptible genotype into a hyperresistant one. And so then he, he was excited by this, so he went and looked for drugs that might, um, might suppress those, uh, inhibit those two pathways down below there. And indeed, he found two drugs. One is called alisporavir, and it's an inhibitor of cyclophilin D. And the other is an old-fashioned tricyclic, old, old drug. It's an, a tricyclic antidepressant, but one of its effects is to, um, is to inhibit acid sphingomy- sphingomyelinase. And when he combined these two drugs, he was able to convert the fish to hyperresistant. And so here's another example of how um, understanding this pathway has led us to unexpected uh, ways to, to treat it. And, and one nice thing to remember about these is that when you give people steroids, I told you ahead of time, I, I told you earlier that you benefited one genotype and you harmed the other genotype. So one way to solve that problem would be to, um, to genotype people ahead of time. But in these, with these downstream drugs, they help one genotype, but they have no effect at all on the other genotype because the pathway simply isn't induced in the other genotype. And so here's one that is neutral to the bad ge- to, to one genotype and helpful to the other. So these are just some things to think about, particularly in areas of the world where, you know, maybe genotyping is not so easy ahead of uh, treatment for an acute disease. Okay. So I've told you... Um, in a, I've summarized for you a, a, a rather complicated pathway. And um, I'll leave you with a take-home message because you may or may not remember the details of that pathway. But what I, the, the message comes from um, a, a hike we made. And so this is um, the Boiling River in, in Yellowstone National Park. And it's on the... Uh, it's on the Montana-Wyoming border, and um, people love to go and bathe in this river, as you can see, after a hot day's hiking. And you have to walk down about a kilometer to, uh, to get into the river at a fixed point. And as you're walking down, you notice that people are pretty much in a straight line in the river. And when you go in you see that even more clearly. Everybody's in a straight line. There's hardly anyone venturing on either side. Why might that be? Well, it's because this is a a river fed... It's a cold mountain river fed by hot streams, uh, hot springs. So on the left, you have your hot springs, and on the the right, you have your uh, very cold, icy mountain water, uh, icy water. And so the only place that's comfortable to be is in that middle area. And so what I've told you today is that 
genetically, TB susceptibility can be from being too hot or too cold. And uh, by showing this, and, and this can be determined genetically, but what I've shown you is that you can use some pharmacologies to pull people out of those hot and cold zones into that comfortable middle zone where we can improve outcomes. Thank you.